much of the chapters that we are looking at today and the gentle and lowly book have to do with the forgiveness of sins and our confidence in the forgiveness of sins. So let's pray this great psalm which speaks of these matters. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Man, let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, we give you thanks for the promise um, that you have made of the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, as we um, prepare our hearts this morning for the renewal of your covenant with us and um, the new declaration that comes to us today, that indeed our sins are forgiven, um, we ask that you would give us the faith to trust you, um, to trust that Jesus' sacrifice indeed atones, um, that his um, present intercession at your right hand is sufficient and that in Christ our sins indeed are forgiven. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm going to have some handouts here. Scott, maybe you can help me, and uh, Jeremy. Uh, it's the same, just everybody just needs one. Actually, I've got one. <clears throat> um, before we jump into the gentle and lowly, I wanted to give opportunity if there were um, any questions about the report that I gave last Sunday? Anything that needs to be followed up on? Anything to talk about there? Okay. I also want to give, I want to try to do this as we have opportunity, give opportunity to... Um, ask questions about recent sermons that have taken place, and so we've been preaching through Hebrews 11, so I'm going to read the first 19 verses that we've covered the past two weeks and just see if there are any 
questions, anything that you know, we haven't been able to cover in the sermon that um, y'all want to talk about uh, before we jump into the material in the book. Hebrews 11 reads this way, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she had considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland." And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Anything come to mind? Any questions? Things that we didn't talk about in sermons that you're curious about discussing further? Or things that I said that were unclear? Anything from that wonderful section of Hebrews 11? That's great. Oh, Trudy, about to move on.
That's a great question, Trudy. So Trudy um, is asking, there's not a lot in Genesis, the early part of Genesis, um, certainly before Genesis 12, um, when Abraham is called about the afterlife, about eternal life, about um, those kinds of things. And so how did they understand that? How did they look forward to that kind of hope? And, um, and um, yeah, is that the essence of it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it is fascinating to think about that because there does not seem, there does seem to be, and we're going to talk about this next week in the sermon. Um, this, today I'm only going to focus on verses 20 and 21 about particularly the blessing that Isaac gives to Joseph's sons. Um, and the next week we're going to talk about how Joseph gave instruction concerning his bones um, by faith, um, we're told by the writer of Hebrews. Um, and I think it's a fair point, um, Trudy, that there's not a lot of explicit description of the resurrection or the afterlife or uh, heaven, as we you know would refer to it. Um, and you know there are stories. You know, I mean, for example, you have the story of Enoch, um, which certainly was recorded um, by. Uh, you know, those early believers, those early line of Seth um, that was faithful. Um, and so Enoch is an example of a person that, that was taken up to heaven um, without death, that saw God, that walked with God. Um, but it, it is interesting because there's so much emphasis in um, Genesis about the burial of the body and the sense that this is an important thing. This is a central feature of what it means to have faith is that we you know, you have this whole chapter in Genesis um, 23 where Abraham refuses to, you know, just receive this field as a gift um, from the Hittites. He wants to buy it. He has to buy it and purchase it with his own money. Um, but it's just this field with this cave. But then that becomes the burial ground for all the patriarchs. Um, Abraham or Sarah's buried there first, then Abraham, um, then Rebecca, then Isaac, um, and then uh, Leah, and then Jacob, and then eventually Joseph um, when, you know, 400 years later when the, the people come out of Egypt and um, into the promised land, they bury him in the cave of Machpelah as well. Um, so it is really interesting to think about that. Well, I don't know that we have like an explicit place that we can point to. It, it seems as though they just sort of piece things together um, as, as far as I can tell. Um, that they, you know, Abraham and Sarah um, just were able to think about the promises of God and understand that, you know, if we're not going to receive all these things in this life, then there must be something after death. And, and that, you know, it comes from, I think, from what I was talking about last week in the sense that some of these habits of faith are believing that God will absolutely keep his promises no matter what and that he has the power to do it. Um, and you see that kind of calculation happening for Abraham when he has to offer up his, is asked to offer up, commanded to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice that, you know, Hebrews tells us um, that he did so believing that God would raise Isaac from the dead. And I, I think Hebrews 11 is a really precious chapter for us as believers because it gives us kind of an inspired Holy Spirit commentary on big sections of the Old Testament, you know, particularly Genesis, but also Exodus um, and uh, some other portions and sort of gives us a little bit of a uh, insight into why they did these things. And I think clearly because of Hebrews 11, we can say that Abraham and Sarah anticipated the resurrection, anticipated um, the fulfillment of all God's promises even after death, um, even though we don't have a lot of explicit data within 
you know, Genesis 12 to 26 or whatever um, in Abraham's life about that particularly. That's, that's probably how I'd answer it. Um, yeah, but, but I, I, I think it's also important to remember that they had, they, I mean, it, at least I believe this is the case, that, um, that they were not ignorant of, Abraham, of, Ab- of sorry, of Adam and Eve or of Abel and Cain um, or of the other patriarchs, of Noah. Of, do you know what I mean? So they understood themselves, I think, and we don't know for sure. I mean, I think, um, I don't think there's any reason to think that those stories hadn't already been written down personally um, in some form, but perhaps they were just oral, you know, people think that, maybe there's oral tradition at that point. Um, and, but I think there's, there's no doubt that they were reflecting on the promises of God going back to the creation and the garden. Um, yeah, and they, the Spirit helped them and they put those things together. It's a fascinating question. I think you're right to notice that, that tension. Jeremy, do you have something to add? I mean, I th- yeah, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that personally. Yeah, because bec- the reason for that is because um, we're told um, that they were looking forward to a city um, that was to come. They desire a better country, a heavenly one. Um, like Hebrews eleven, I think gives us, and we should trust Hebrews eleven, gives us insight into. Uh, I, I think, and this is what I, I would say: this, I think that, and Lewis talks about this a lot. If you read his writing, like this bias that modern people have against ancient people, um, this idea that if you're ancient, you're inherently primitive, and you didn't know things, and then, and I just don't think there's much in the Bible to really um, support that, and so I, I think I would be cautious of any kind of explanation of Abraham and Sarah's faith to say that, well, they had this sort of primitive, you know, simple faith that God sort of accepted because they didn't know better or something, you know. Um, I really, I really think that these people are given to us as models and examples, and they, I think they knew, they knew a great deal about God. And even you see that in the life of Abraham. He goes around, and um, God doesn't even necessarily tell him how to do this or what to do, but he goes around, he's building altars, he's worshiping. Um, you know, there is, from the very beginning, at least God doesn't tell him how to do it in terms of explicit things we read in Genesis. And maybe that's part of the answer, is that there's more communication that happens between God and Abraham um, then is actually explicitly recorded. Um, yeah. Somebody else have a hand? David and then Mike. Yeah. Okay. It's a great point. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. That's an excellent point, Mike. I agree. That's, that's something we don't often think about those early chapters of Genesis, of how long these people are living and how much there's actually overlap in terms of 
their lives. Um, so yes, so if you live 900 years, you're gonna know, you know, about what, 12 generations or something of your grandchildren um, and have the opportunity to invest in them and teach them and yeah, that's exactly right, I think that's right. And he, he was able to describe um, the things that he witnessed and the things that he learned uh, from his parents and learned about his older brothers and you know, those kinds of things. Absolutely, that's a great point. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair to say, David. Um, David's just making the point that um, that people in the ancient world had knowledge, knowledge and skills and things that it's hard for us to relate to because we don't live in the same kind of culture today. And I think that's actually very accurate. Um, yeah, I, I would really encourage us to, to have a, I think the Bible encourages us to have a very high view of the faith of the patriarchs. Um, yes, and I think that's wise for us to do. And I don't know that we are going to know all the answers um, for, you know, some of these questions. Um, but I, th I think that we should, we should, we should um, view them very positively. Yeah, Kim. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's there. Yeah, and Kim rightly says um, that um, God has set eternity in our hearts, and then that's something that even from a sort of a natural perspective um, that human beings have always had a sense for, and, and certainly Abraham and Sarah would have had those things in addition to whatever special revelation God gave them as well. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Anybody else? I think these are fascinating topics, and, and I really would. I mean, you know, personally, I believe that, you know, that Adam um, wrote Genesis, you know, one through three at least. Um, I don't know if he wrote it on a, you know, some kind of scroll or something or some kind of thing, or if he wrote it in terms of, you know, he orally passed it down. I think, I think these things existed. I think these things were passed down. I mean, how could it not be, right? If you're Adam and you know these things about creation, um, how would you not pass all of that down in some um, solid, trustworthy way to your descendants? Um, and so on. You know, the stories of Noah. I think Noah wrote those stories. Um, I think those stories came down. And, and we can certainly say that Moses, you know, took all these things and and put them together and all that, and the Spirit attended that process. But uh, the alternative is just to say that somehow an angel gave special revelation and a vision to Moses so that he would know all these things, you know, immediately. 
Um, and I don't, I'm not sure that that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that those stories, those first part of Genesis, those are, those are narratives that are passed down, that are mediated um, through human beings. And, and the Lord attended that process. And it makes a lot of sense to me that, that those earliest uh, men and women uh, living, as Mike pointed out, almost a millennia, many of them, um, are going to see that as a really important part of their work, their life, is, is passing on what they've learned to their descendants. All right, great question, Trudy. Sparked some good discussion. All right, let's, let's look at gentle and lowly. I'm going to make sure we have some time to look at this. Um, so two weeks ago, um, you know, we were intending to cover these chapters, and then um, the events um, down the street happened at the synagogue, and we spent most of our Sunday school time talking about that. Um, and so today I really, I think these are some good chapters, and so I really wanted to just take some time and go back over them uh, for us. I, I think there's some good things for us to think about. Um, so chapter 6 of Gentle and Lowly uh, is entitled, I Will Never Cast Out, and it's based on uh, John 6, um, 37 to 40. Um, and John Bunyan has a ref- a, a wrote a book, or really on one of these verses, on verse 37 that Dane kind of takes and, and uh, plays with in this chapter. So Jesus is speaking to the crowds after he has fed them in the wilderness in John 6 the next day. Um, and he says, uh, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's a very explicit promise um, that Jesus gives. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, I don't know about you, but those have always been really precious words to me. Um, um, John 6 as a whole, of course, is a really precious chapter, I think, in the scriptures that we should cling to. And um, it's a really profound teaching that Jesus gives in the latter part of this chapter about his, um, the way that he gives nourishment um, to us, body and soul, and the way that he um, delivers us. And, and even in that teaching, uh, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. I'll lose nothing that the Father gives me, but raise them up on the last day. Obviously, Jesus is talking about not only the forgiveness of our sins, but also the promise of resurrection, right? Um, um, that he's going to raise all of those who belong to him from the dead on the last day. And that's what he means by that. But I, I, just that the idea that I will lose nothing, or there's, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's particularly the phrase um, that, that Dane latches onto in this chapter, um, by way of, again, John Bunyan. Um, and so he says this, he says on page 63 of his book, he says, fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. So he's saying we push against this kind of promise, the um, the unqualified nature of it, right? The, um, the, the strength of it, the comprehensiveness of it. He says, even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. 
And so I just wanted to ask, like, what do you all think about that statement? Does that fit with your own sense of God and your life? And I see some nodding heads out there. <laughs> Anybody want to say anything about that? Sure. I appreciate that, Roy. That's a great um, comment. I think descriptive for many of us of our lives with God. That Roy's well, making the point that often in the beginning, um, when you you really grasp the the truths of God's word and His love for you for the first time or in a new way, um, you're very confident of His love. But then it's normal and natural over time to to sort of begin to to wonder and to to think about your own experience and you know maybe. Uh, maybe I'm the exception. Maybe um, the Lord doesn't love me fully. Um, and just that, that difference between e- relying on our experience to know um, and hold forth the truth that God loves us versus um, the idea, forces the, the fundamental reality that he does love us, um, that he's with us always. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Would, what else, Donna? Any thoughts about that?
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right, right. Love that. Really stood out to you. I appreciate that. Yeah, so Don is making the point about how uh, Dane references here that sometimes it's not so much our sins or our perception of our own unworthiness that causes us to believe that God uh, may cast us out, but our experience of suffering um, and of his perceived distance, his um, displeasure you know, based on our, our experience in the world. Um, and, and, you know, Donald Salah, she appreciates how Dane is pointing, pointing her, pointing us back to what are our true circumstances. Um, our true circumstances are the steadfast, faithful love of God, his holding to us even as we seek to cling to him. I love that, Don, I appreciate that. I think that's really insightful from a pastoral perspective. I'm just, certainly that's something that I've seen with folks that, that people that I've seen really at times just really wrestle with God's love for them often it is in the context of suffering. Less so than the context of, you know, sin. Um, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, Matt. Adam's sin took place without suffering being part of his experience in any way. That's true. His doubt of God's word, yeah. Yeah. I tried to. I do my best. I'm probably above average for what it's worth. <laughs> flaw that was built in by God? Um, I would say that um, 
the scriptures compel me to say that there was not a flaw built into creation by God. I think that would be a road we wouldn't want to go down theologically. Um, but it is fascinating. I think you're right about that in many ways is the, the initial sin of the human race is doubting God's goodness. Um, and that happens because of Satan in a, at least in terms of a, you know, direct, you know, cause or whatever, um, that there, there is that temptation. That's the temptation that's offered, um, and Adam and Eve fail. Um, they give in to that temptation. And, I mean, it's fascinating because, um, if you look at Luke 4, we covered Luke 4 in Women's Bible Study recently, the temptation of Jesus is fundamentally, are you really the son of God? Do you really believe your father's love for you? It comes right after um, his baptism uh, where the father says, you are my beloved son and whom well pleased. And the Satan comes and says, if you're the son of God, you know, turn these uh, stones into bread. If you're the son of God, uh, jump off this, you know, the temple and, and God will deliver you. Um, and, and Jesus refuses to put the Lord to the test. Um, he trusts the Father's love for him, but I do think that's a great picture. And certainly that is something that Satan is trying to get us to do, and we should talk about that. We should acknowledge that. Satan, one of his fundamental things he wants us to do is to doubt the love of God for us, to doubt the promises of God, to doubt um, the character of God. Um, and you see this even really prominently in the book of Job, right? And, and, it, and how does the book of you know, how does Satan try to get Job to, um, to lose his faith in God? Suffering, yeah, circumstances, right? Uh, terrible suffering, um, you know, suffering that's unimaginable really for, I think, for any of us. Um, to lose all that he lost in terms of his wealth and his children and his health and all of those things. And then it's almost like Satan came through these other people, you know, his wife is saying, you know, just curse God and die, you know, like, can you not see what's, I mean, I'm not saying that she was possessed by the devil or something, but that's like a, you know, that's like a satanic temptation there that his wife is giving him in that moment. Um, and then these three friends come and they say, well, if you d these things happen, you must have deserved it um, in different ways. They're all basically saying that, you know, God only punishes people that are wicked, so you must have been wicked. So why don't you acknowledge your wickedness and, you know, um, and, I, you know, th there's this, certainly a satanic element even to those friends in terms of the ways that danger um, doubt God to doubt his goodness to doubt his love those kinds of things and um, Job I mean Job is a fascinating Christ figure um, in terms of the way that he remains steadfast under that temptation um, and and is commended at the end um, by the Lord um, for his faith and his trust that in all these things we're told at the end of Job uh, Job did not sin. Um, Job did not sin in his his wrestling with God. Um, yeah, I think that's a fascinating question, Matt. I don't know if I've answered it or not, but I but I do think that you're. I would certainly agree that we should think about we should be more aware of Satan than we are. And you know, s sort of in pop culture, right? Satan is the the little demon on your shoulder that's like offering you a cigarette, and you know a shot or whatever, you know, um, and I, I don't think that's really true, like, that's like low-hanging fruit for Satan, you know, um, I think what Satan's really doing is he's, he's wanting us to doubt the Father's love, he's wanting us to doubt the goodness of God, um, because he knows that if that's, 
if we do that, then we, we're really, he's really done something. He's really harmed us spiritually. He's really um, led us um, astray in a fundamental way. It's, you know, far deeper than some of those other more superficial um, sins. Um, and, and this is why, you know, we talked about this when we did the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments begin with, um, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and Luther and Calvin talk about how this means that we should love and trust God more than anyone else. This, that's what that commandment means positively. You know, that that's the fundamental calling that we have towards God is to love and trust him um, more than anything. Um, and Satan wants to drive a wedge in there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Martin Luther is a great resource if you want to read about Satan. Um, he talks about Satan a lot. And, and I, think, I think you'll see with Luther, this is the kind of thing that, that Luther describes Satan as doing for, to him, is to doubt God's love. Do you have a statement or a question? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Sure. Yep. No, I appreciate that, Jeremy. I think this is something Dane does well in this chapter. On page 66, um, he, he helps us as Presbyterians, you know, we talk about the perseverance of the saints as being a sort of ironclad, you know, part of the decree of God, um, that if you are in Christ, you will persevere to the end. And I think there's good reason, of course, for that doctrine. Um, but ultimately, Dane makes the point, we're not putting our trust in a doctrine we're putting our trust in a person um, who makes the doctrine true, right? And I do think that that can be a failure within the Reformed Church sometimes that we, you know, we can put our faith in these sort of systems, you know, Scripture said this, da-da-da-da, so this is true, X, Y, and Z, 
Um, so, you know, and I, and I think Dane does a good job of helping us remember that the, the, what the scriptures teach is that there is a person behind these things, that they are true not just because of some law of the universe, but because God has willed it this way, because he desires it to be like this. So he says, Dane says, we've come more deeply to the doctrine of the perseverance of the heart of Christ. Yes, professing, and, that, and that's a good way to talk it, like, a, you know, yes, we're talking about perseverance of the saint, we will persevere, but we're also talking, even as Donald was mentioning earlier, about the perseverance of God's love for us, that he won't let us go. Um, um, so maybe, you know, maybe a better word for that doctrine would be, you know, the perseverance of Christ toward his saints, <laughs> rather than the perseverance of the saints. Um, yes, professing Christians can fall away, proving they were never truly in Christ, and that's absolutely the case. Um, yes, once a sinner is united to Christ, there is nothing that can disunite them, but within the skeletal structure of these doctrines, what is the beating heart of God made tangible in Christ? What is, the most, deeply what is most deeply instinctive to him as our sins and sufferings pile up? What keeps him from growing cold? The answer is his heart. Um, the atoning work of the Son decreed by the Father and applied by the Spirit ensures that we are safe eternally. But a text such as John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, um, and reassures us that this is not only a matter of divine decree, but divine desire. And this is how Jesus wants it to be. Um, he keeps us to himself. Um, this is heaven's delight. Come to me, says Christ. I will embrace you into my deepest being and never let you go. Um, and I, I love, I do think that's, and that's something certainly that I've, I try to do in my own preaching and ministry here is to talk again and again about the person of Christ and how that is what is central to us, um, that you are, you are in a relationship with a person who has bound himself to you, and it is fundamentally personal, um, your relation with God, because of that. Um, it's not just this abstract kind of list of things that you believe propositions. Um, it's actually a living person who has bound himself to you, to whom you are united by the Spirit. Um, and you can't untangle yourself from it, right? He's, he's the husband that won't let you go, won't let you leave. Um, have you considered what is true of you if you are in Christ? Dane says, in order for you to fall short of in order for you to fall short of loving embrace into the heart of Christ, both now and into eternity, Christ himself would have to be pulled out of heaven and put back in the grave. His death and resurrection make it just for Christ to never cast us out, uh, no matter how often, never cast out his own, no matter how often they fail. Um, and I think that's a, that's a wonderful image, and I think it's true that, that God can't undo what he has done for us in Jesus unless he's willing to reverse time and space somehow and reverse all that Jesus has done in, in history um, in the, his death and resurrection and ascension um, because that's the story that we've been caught up into. Any other questions or thoughts about that? Somebody? Trudy? Mm-hmm. 
It does. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, none of, us, none of us learn that God loves us um, by ourselves. We do so always in the context of a community. And often, yeah, through other human beings um, who are part of the people of God who love us faithfully um, as images of Christ in that way. Yeah, Kim. Yeah, right. It's all connected. Yeah, those, those are the things that drive us to him. Um, that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. Let me, um, I want to move, I want to talk a little bit about, I thought Dane also did a great job with chapter nine. We talked some a couple weeks ago. I do think that he overplays this sort of like distinction between Christ as our intercessor and Christ as our advocate. I wouldn't put those things, I'd say there are different ways of looking at the same work that Christ does as our high priest. Um, that he is both our intercessor, as Hebrews describes him, and he is also our paraclete, our advocate, as First John chapter 2 describes him. And let me read that passage from First John 2 um, to center us on it. Um, he says, the Apostle John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you do not, to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a paraclete. It's the same word that's translated uh, comforter um, or, or counselor at times um, about the Holy Spirit in John 14 to 16 when Jesus is talking about the spirit that will come and be the, the paraclete for um, the apostles. Um, it, it's interesting because just sometimes we, we try to impose these systematic categories in the Bible like, um, Romans 8, you know, Jesus is our intercessor. Well, Romans 8 says that the Spirit also intercedes for us, right, with groanings too deep for words, that the Spirit is an intercessor. Um, and so I, I do think we just, we just want to be thoughtful about how, you know, Scripture doesn't seem to have a problem with using different kinds of words, um, even for different persons of the Trinity, and attributing some, that doesn't mean the Father, the Son is the same as the Spirit, of course. Um, but it's a little fuzzy in some ways. Um, it's complicated. Um, and we should be thoughtful about that. Uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous, um, John says. He is the propitiation that is the covering. That's what propitiation means for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we don't have time to get into the last part of that verse um, because, you know, holy cow, what does that mean? Um, but um, so, but I, I, I like this. I, I think Dane does a good job of talking about what does it mean that we have an advocate, that Jesus is our paraclete before the Father, that he advocates for us. And I, I think he's pretty receptive, or per perceptive. Um, 
He says, this is on the back of your handout. He says, consider your own life. How do you think about Jesus' attitude toward that dark pocket of your life that only you know? I would say, first of all, if there are dark pockets of your life that only you know about, I'd say, don't do that. Um, you know, um, try, try to put that away. Um, talk, to, talk to me. Um, that's what I'm here for. Talk to someone that you trust. Um, but if, if there is a dark pocket of your life that only you know about, uh, how do you think about it? The overdependence on alcohol, the lost temper time and again, the shady business about your finances, the inveterate people-pleasing that looks to others but like niceness but which you know to be fear of man, the entrenched resentment that bursts out in the behind-the-back accusations, the habitual use of pornography. Who is Jesus in the moments of spiritual blankness? Not who is he once you conquer that sin, but who is he in the midst of it? Jesus is our paraclete, that's the Greek word, our comforting defender, the one nearer than we know, and his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. Um, and I really appreciate that. I think that's a great thing for us to wrestle with and think about Jesus. Um, this is really, if we take seriously the forgiveness of our sins, we mean that he forgives all our sins, um, even the ones that are secret and hidden and we're ashamed of and have a hard time talking about with other people. Um, and Jesus is our paraclete um, um, because those often are the sins that most accuse us. Um, and I, I think he's re Dane's really perceptive on page 92. This next little quote I have, he says, fallen humans are natural self-advocates. It flows out of us, right? We want to we advocate for ourselves, self-exonerating, self-defending. Our fallen hearts intuitively manufacture reasons that our case is not really that bad, right? It's not really that bad. It's just a little porn, you know? Um, it's just a little, you know, cheating on our taxes or, um, you know, in a, a contract or it's just, you know, whatever it might be. Um, we, we do this, I think, as, as human beings. We, if we don't rely on the advocacy of Christ, Dane is saying, we're going to rely on the advocacy of ourselves, of our own hearts, um, to diminish our sin, to diminish its, its horror, its damage, um, its, its, um, its offense against God. Uh, we minimize, we excuse, we explain away, Dane says. In short, we speak even if only in our hearts in our defense. We advocate for ourselves. Um, you know, I don't use, lose my temper that much, you know. Um, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, um, you know, it's only a couple nights a week that I have more uh, to drink than I should. Um, you know, it, it's in a particular context. I was stressed, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, I earned it. Uh, you know, we do this. Does this sound familiar? Do we do this? Do we advocate for ourselves <laughs> in our sin? Um, I, think, I think we do. Dane goes on to say, what if we never needed to advocate for ourselves because another had undertaken to do so? We would be free, free of the need to defend ourselves to bolster our sense of worth through self-contribution, to quietly parade before others our virtues and painful subconscious awareness of our inferiorities and our weaknesses. We can leave our case to be made by Christ, the only righteous one. Uh, Bunyan sums it up this way. He says, but since we are rescued by him, that is by Jesus, let us as to ourselves lay our hand upon our mouth and 
stop trying to excuse it, stop trying to defend it, just let Jesus handle it. Let him free you from this. Uh, Dane summarizes what he's trying to say in this chapter in this way. Uh, Do not minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. Let your own righteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous in all his brightness and sufficiency. And I will say this too. um, This is why one of the reasons you have pastors... um, friends, is, you know, I'm not not saying anything here that's not been true of classic Protestantism um, for 500 years. Luther talked about this, Calvin talked about this, um, the Westminster Confession talks about it. Um, Pastors are designated by Christ and set apart to pronounce um, and declare the forgiveness of your sins. It's a gift that is given. Um, The Lord gives it to you. And I just, that's why we do it every Sunday. I'm not saying that we enact the forgiveness of your sins or that we uh, make it happen. You know, Jesus does all those things. Um, but, but I think we've talked about this, that you, it, human beings need something outside of themselves to tell them that they're forgiven. And in John 20, Jesus designates this. Uh, men to this task, and this is at the heart, as I understand it, of my pastoral task and calling, um, is to declare the forgiveness of sins to sinners in the name of Jesus. And I just would encourage you, that, that's why on Sunday morning, every Lord's Day, we have a strong declaration of forgiveness. Um, we don't waffle, we don't add a bunch of disclaimers. Um, you confess your sins, you entrust yourself to Jesus, and we declare that your sins are forgiven because Jesus is faithful and because Jesus is merciful and he gives you a, a, you know, a representative of himself to tell you that in person um, because he loves you that in that way. And so I, I do hope that this is this kind of thing that Dane is talking about, this um, Putting down your guard and not advocating for yourself is something that you can at least do on Sunday mornings with the Lord. And you can at least be totally honest with him without excuse um, in that period of silence um, when we confess our sins privately. And you can know that your sins are forgiven. And um, that, that is one of my, de- and that's why, you know, we don't, we try not to have a, a sort of penitential tone when we come to the Lord's Supper at the end of our service because like, we dealt with all that, you know? Like, we confessed our sins, and Jesus declared forgiveness, um, that he loves us, and that we're, uh, we're cleansed. And so we can be confident in the Lord's presence and be at peace, and our hearts can be at peace before him. And I would say, that again, that's why, one of the many reasons why we need Lord's Day worship. Um, we need forgiveness to come outside of ourselves. Yes, you know, if you're on a desert island, your sins are forgiven, and you can trust God for that, but isn't it great we don't live on desert islands, you know? Um, And if we don't, we should go and have someone else besides ourselves tell us that we're forgiven and that God loves us, um, because we need that. We need it, I believe. All right, let's, um, let's stand and pray.
Father, give us um, grace, give us your mercy, um, be with us in your kindness even this day. Lord, help us to reflect on these things, um, how all of what we believe to be true about your love for us is true because um, of the heart of Christ and because of his affection for us and because of your um, desire, uh, Father, um, for us to be your children. And I do pray, Father, we wrestle with these things and that you would give us increased confidence in your grace and mercy. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.